So my nigga knives. Hey man, how you been, man? Hey uh, just saying what's up, and uh, I'm hollering at everybody on my contacts because I got this crazy ex. You know what I'm saying? You know your boy had to go in. I did her dirty. That bitch trying to do me dirty now, so she's sending. She says she's gonna send viruses to all my contacts. So if you get this enhancement of my picture, my profile picture and shit like that. It said something about a video. Don't open that shit, nigga, because that she's a, it's a fucking virus and she gon' she a hacker, man. I was fucking this hacker, man. She got too crazy, so I had to fucking, you know what I'm saying? I had to dip. She didn't like that. She started. Now she fucking with me, so don't open it. Alright, my nigga. Peace, nigga. Stay up. It's funny you say that because like I come from a professional wrestling background. That's wild. And. uh it's called like a gimmick, right? When you like The Rock, it's a gimmick, right? Yeah. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah. His real name is Steve Williams. Right. And for me, I needed a wrestling name. I came up with Knives Monroe, and then it became like my pen name, my pseudonym. Yeah. And then when my daughter was born, I gave her the last name Monroe, and my grandma, very superstitious Hispanic woman, was like, "You should probably change your name. People are going to say that's not your daughter." And I was like, "Really?" She gave me two hundred bucks. I went to the court, changed my name in a day. The only pain in the ass was updating your social and your driver's license. That was it. It's very easy yeah. if you want, but you know, I'm kind of think I've been leaning that way because there's a whole we can get into it, but there's a whole thing about we can even talk about that. Like the what I was telling you when we had the conversation about in certain cultures, like in this culture, we get our family name and we're meant to be tethered to that for the duration of our lives. Whereas in other cultures, you get that because you can't give yourself a name when you come out of the womb. But as you mature and grow into these different phases of life, part of that ritual, that transition ritual, is a, is a process of renaming yourself in relationship to that phase of life. That's right. Yeah. I feel like I did that. You know, um, I wasn't born Knives Monroe, but I became him. But I also had to, it was a process, you know. Yeah. So, but I also felt like I was never... I, I, I didn't feel like an Anthony Moreno. I didn't feel like one. That's interesting. Like in roll call, like you just said that. I didn't yeah. obviously know that was your yeah, name, but sure. like you say that, and yeah. I'm like, I could totally see you as really? Anthony Moreno. And in a third, like I remember being in elementary and like during roll call when we had like a substitute teacher, and they would say my name. I was like this is my chance to reinvent myself. Like I yeah. was, I had those thoughts at such an early age. So. In third grade? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's going to be ambience and stuff like that. I'm that totally cool with it. Yeah. Um, but let's just get right into it. This is Knives Monroe. Welcome to the podcast. I have John Prophet uh, with me, and it's, uh, it's, it's a really honor to have you here in my home studio. Yeah, so man, so thanks place. for coming on, man. Um, let's just get right into it. Um, give me your abbreviated bio for my listeners. Let's see if I can do that. Take as long as you want. You're right, because <laughs> you can abbreviate it after the fact. So first part of my life was really spent in, uh, well, I was going to go into the military and the special forces. That was my jam when I was a young, young guy, a young, angry guy. And I had a, a mentor at 15 who was an ex-Navy SEAL who was kind of preparing me for that life and studied martial arts all through my teenage years. And then I discovered music. My grandfather had introduced me to music early on, probably around nine, gave me my first guitar, but I didn't really take it seriously until 15. Finally, my little town had somebody who was 
competent enough to offer guitar classes, but just barely. And what town was that? This is Sholo, Arizona. Wow. Tiny little town up in northeastern Arizona. Actually had snow. Most people don't associate snow with Arizona, but we actually had, you know, good four-foot drifts. (laughs) Shoveling in the the winter, driveways, scraping ice, chopping wood, the whole thing. But it's good. Good good to grow up in a rural town like that. Get your sense of, of groundedness, you know earthing as we talked about <laughs> yeah. i told my whole family about that yeah nice yeah. they yeah. thought it was crazy yeah i'm sure but i was like come on let's all like lie down let's, on the dirt I'm right now you, you're gonna see how you it. feel afterwards yeah go to a park and just lay down and see what you think you know it's it's visceral so yeah i did that um then got introduced to music and that became really that's kind of the the pivotal you know we all have these why moments you know these crossroad moments and that was a real crossroad moment because i was in the recruiter signing up and we had this conversation and he asked me if I had had, ever had asthma and I did, but I hadn't had an about with it for a few years, I think. And I said, yeah. And he put the pen down and he was like, how long has it been? I was like, well, I haven't had an attack for X amount of time. And he was like, well, I can't proceed until you get a doctor's note. And at that point I'd already been hmm, wavering on my decision because this music thing had just taken over. You know, I started playing eight hours a day. I'd come home, had no real social life. It was kind of like part-time dad to my brothers since it was a single parent household. And I was like nine years older than the, than the next one in line. So I just come home and babysit and play guitar. <laughs> and uh, I just went hard into it. And suddenly that became my identity. I was really, didn't have much by way of identity, one of those kind of misfits who bounced around from click to click, you know, group to group, um, but never really dialed into any particular one except for the misfit click. (laughs) And those sort of, maybe that guy was more into, he was kind of, uh, say, 75% jock. That John? No, no. Like our, our sort of circle was like, you know, somebody could be kind of 75% in their clique, but then there was like 25% misfit. So they would kind of come and join our, because they wasn't totally into whatever they were in, but they were. Like they were a really good football player or a basketball player or whatever. But there's also something a little off about them that didn't allow them to fully immerse themselves in that culture. And so they would come join our little hodgepodge, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting group of people. Um and I got a lot out of that. And then, you know, the musician thing kicked in, that identity kicked in. And then it was just, it was all over. <laughs> I just was determined, like, I'm going to be a rock star. And that's my, that's where I'm going. I'm telling everybody that and started bands. And I was just going to be a guitar player. So I was really learning from a lot of the great guitar players at that time, the real shredder kind of guys, Joe Satriani and Steve Vai and Van ha- Eddie Van Halen. And Isn't there like a like an Ingve Momstein or something like yeah, this? Yeah, British guy who plays, basically took all the classical stuff and translated onto electric guitar. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and so I got really those into Those were your that. guys? Yeah, for a long time. But then I would listen to, you know, in school, I was having to play jazz. So I was instantly recruited into that, which I had no business doing because I, you know, barely started playing. But like of the guitar class, I was probably the most competent and I wasn't very competent. And uh, but that also pushed me because I was on stage really quickly, like way too quickly. And I was terrible. 
So this is the thing about overcoming fear and conquering your insecurities around that. Because I would get on stage and just suck, you know. And my drummer friend, who'd started a little bit before me, but we always played together. Um, like we'd sneak into his church, you know, on off nights and like plug into all the gear and play the drums and do the whole thing. And, uh, you know, the our friends and family would come up after the show and be like, oh, man, you did so great today. So, you know, and, and then they'd kind of just look at me and be like, oh, John, nice try. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, yeah, I know. I know it was terrible. And why am I even up here? But that forced me to put in the hours and put in the time and really like focus on, I'm going to show them. That was that. Yeah, you know, it's the I'm chip gonna, on your shoulder. Yeah, I'm gonna, and so within two years, I got a scholarship. You know, so is that so junior senior year? Those two years, played my ass off, got a scholarship to a just the local college, just like kind of the ACC version, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and played jazz, and that's what I did for like two years. And but the flip side of that was I really didn't do any of the work of the courses you're supposed to do. Yeah, and you know, lost my scholarship basically, but I was just, I was that music. That's all I cared about. So then I moved down to the Valley and started working for bands doing, um, roadie California. No, this was Phoenix. The Phoenix Valley. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I started doing roadie work, working for just great stories. Cause I'm like underage, but I'm like working with these rock and roll guys, you know, with the long hair and this, you know, leopard print spandex. And then around what year was this? God, this was our, early 90s so this is the heyday of of yes i was right in the the switch where it started to go from like that 80s hair metal glam kind of thing and then started to move into this like fuck you seattle yeah uh you know the world is going to hell in a handbasket and that's what we should be talking about yeah and so a lot of those bands we're seeing the writing on the wall and trying to make the transition, I think, you know, in yeah. a way. But at the same time, like there's this fuck you, but did you guys want to make it? Yeah, like for me, I was just working for bands at that time. It took me a while to like actually get into my like I joined a band called Scapegoat, which was kinda had their little moment in the sun and they were kind of that alternative rock. But when I was working as a roadie in a tech, I was doing I was working for basically hair metal bands, mm-hmm. you know, like not a ton of makeup, but <laughs> it yeah. was pretty glammy. Yeah, and um, you know that was that was just there was more of them, especially in Arizona, in Phoenix. Like yeah. that scene has lasted way more years than it should have, <laughs> you know. And then bands like the Jim Blossoms and you know those kind of desert jangle rock bands started to take over. But for a long time, it was that. And then I started getting my own bands. I was playing guitar. I didn't really really want to be a singer. But it was one of those things that necessity, you know, is the mother of invention. And so we'd have guys who like wanted to sing um, and then never show up for practice or just be clearly intimidated by being on the mic. And so I just started to do that. All right. Singer, guitar player thing. And it was pretty terrible. I mean, the first bands that I played in were hard rock or even like metal. We, you know, we were covering Anthrax and Metallica. So you screamed, growled? Yeah. Yeah. Shouted. Really? More like that. Like yeah. a black flag thing? I don't know if it was more like kind of Rollinsy. It was I was you know, I was singing well let's say like Joey Belafonte from Anthrax actually could sing. He was a set of pipes. For a metal guy, he was wow. a singer. Yeah, yeah. So I would 
try and sing like that because we were covering those songs, I but see. I also sang Metallica, you know? So, yeah. and I think James has always been more of a shouter yeah. until the later years, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so, and then we would do just obscure MOD. I mean, early, early on, I think we did a Poison cover. We did, you know, Van Halen covers. And so there was some of that, but it wasn't really singing for me and probably until the mid nineties where I was like, okay, I started really schooling on singers like mm-hmm. Black Crows, you know, yeah. and and Soundgarden, you know, yeah. like Chris Cornell, and I discovered Jeff Buckley and Chris Whitley, and like it just moved and morphed into these other things, and I started mm-hmm. broadening my horizons musically yeah. and being really interested in, you know, because you listen to a guy and then you think, well, where did he get that? Yep. And then you go follow that rabbit hole, and then pretty soon you're back at Robert Johnson, <laughs> you know, yeah. or you know. Muddy Waters or just like that kind of old school. And and you realize the depth and the richness of all of that music. And you get less angry. I mean, hopefully, you know, like I yeah. was kind of bored of the one dimensionality of a lot of the metal stuff that I was listening to. I mean, m- music can help you, especially at that impressionable age, access different emotions anyways. Totally, totally. Yeah. And it was perfect for me at that time to have a voice around all the angst that I had at that time. But I, you know, b- before that, before I even really discovered music as a player, I was really fortunate enough to have influences like, you know, my grand, my, well, my dad listened to the Eagles mm-hmm. and, you know, old Willie Nelson, my uncles listened to Steely Dan and, um, you know, Buck Owens, you know, so, and then I had, you know, we had Zeppelin records, Elton John records, um, monkeys, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of what else was on. Yeah. It was just a lot of kind of good classic stuff yep. that it took a minute to get, to really dial into. And it, some of it, I kind of had to rediscover, yeah. but I remember early on, like, you know, when they used to play long ass songs on the radio, yeah. they like, they played a version of writers on the storm. And I remember when I first heard that, like I ran up to the stereo system, the hi-fi, and I just sat down in front of it. I had to have been like five or six or something like that. And I just turned What it was up. it about it? I don't know. There was something so... Spooky? Moody yeah. and, and mysterious, yeah. you know? I think that's kind of what it was. Just that, really that melody line, you know, that bass line. And then, the, of course, the way Morrison comes at it, you know, Riders on the Storm. Like, fuck, where are you going to go from there, you know? So songs like that, I think they're just like really stuck. And I think I've always had this sort of sense of, I don't know where it comes from, but like innate melancholy. Maybe, I, you know, sometimes I think it's like a genetically um, low uh, <laughs> volume of, uh, of uh, serotonin, you know, like they're just not producing enough. Do you <laughs> so think? Do you think? I sometimes, I don't know. I've never had it tested, but like yeah. as I listen to a lot of like, podcasts and things related to health and biochemistry and biohacking and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes I think, Oh, maybe that is, maybe it's just a chemical thing, you know, and, and a chemical thing that could have been switched on as a, as an environmental influence too. So, you know, so all those things can be working in tandem, but you just take them for granted. You're just like, well, I'm just that kind of person. And then you, you know, take something like a, a hormone you know, balancer or something like that. And then like, Oh wow, this is, must be how normal people feel. Mm -hmm. Like I have a sense of positivity and (laughs) lightness in the world. I have hope that things are going to turn out well and I can stay focused for a minute, you know? And 
So I think, I don't know. I'm still sort of like sifting through all that stuff. That's funny you say that, man. Like I found myself, uh, do you do this in the Spotify? Oh yeah. Okay. I'm not sure if you're one of those, you know, I got to have my CDs or I ain't going to listen to it, man. Type people. Too lazy. Got it. <laughs> too I lazy was, and too much, too much stuff. Like I was a, too, too much to carry everything, you know? Exactly. I was a very early adopter of, of pirating. Like I, yeah, it's, it's well, it's well documented on this podcast. You know, yeah. I was an early adopter on Napster and all the stuff that came after it. And, you know, it would take like eight hours to burn a CD and I'd, you know, give them away for free for friends. And, yeah. you know, it was just, I was just that kid very early on, but, um, Spotify gives you a year recap of all the songs that you listen to, right. like the data, the statistics and, you know, the 10 most listened songs that I heard were really sad songs. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting. And window. even if they're like melodic and upbeat, they're still ballads, you yeah. know, and I don't know too much about music, but I don't, that seems to be a, a place that I emotional place that I surf at constantly. Mm-hmm. I'm usually, that's like my, that's just the frequency I'm kind of always at, but it's always been like that. Like it wasn't just something that happened this year. Like I can go back to, you know, my early childhood and it's like, I loved ballads, sad songs. Yeah. Like, I don't know why, like the ones that, you know, like my favorite Guns N' Roses was like, uh, was that November Rain or something? Yeah. Something like that. I yeah. would just listen to that on repeat. It was so sad. Yeah. I don't know what it's really about, right. but it just, it just affected me. You know, even the pop songs that were on the radio, I like the sad ones the most. But uh, you used the word, was it melancholy? Melancholy. Yeah, I, I call myself a, a, a melancholic for sure. Melancholic. Like, there's just something <laughs> great. I can't escape it and then i have music on and my my kids sometimes are like why are you why are you so sad they think i'm being sad right and i'm like this actually makes me feel better yeah it's like i'm somebody's checking in with me i'm not the mm-hmm. only one that feels this way mm-hmm. i don't know which came first but it sounds like you you relate to that um what kind of music what were the stories that you had to tell like what did you find yourself sing, you know singing about playing about like at that time like what was the you know, not to be reductive and say genre, but like, what was like the atmosphere that you were trying to Mm. convey? Well, yeah, as a writer, people obviously approach it in different ways. I always related to the people who wrote from the subconscious. So writing in poetry as opposed to prose. Right. Hmm. And so a lot of the folk movement is all about storytelling, you know, you got to tell them stories and front porch stories and they're very literal generally. Yeah. Um, beginning, middle, and end, yeah. not really much room for interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Here's the story. Follow. And some people are great at that. I mean, fucking Bob Dylan is brilliant at yeah. that. Uh, I've never been that good at that. I, 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 If I can do it, I usually do it where I'm essentially translating a story that somebody else wrote. So I wrote a song about Wounded Knee, right? And I took that out of a history book, basically, and I just sort of interpreted it uh, to, to fit music. Mm. Right. So that had more of a linear quality to it, but mostly the, the therapeutic or the cathartic process happens by, you know, what the sort of notorious story about Jimmy Page writing, um, stairway to heaven, like automatic writing, right. It's basically, I don't know that. I don't know anything about that. Oh, okay. So the story goes like, you know, and this is legend, legend. Yeah. Where, where they were like, Oh, like, the Christian contingent who was really bagging on all those bands of that time, thinking they're all of the devil, right? That kind of Uh thing. Like they were one of those, the song was one of those examples where they would say, well, he was saying that he was, you know, automatic writing or being, 
you know, sort of as a channel for this thing, mm. right? And of course, that thing has to be the devil, right? What else could it be? Um, but really, it's your subconscious. Like yep. what's happening is you're just allowing your subconscious to speak and not get in the way. And that's how great poetry comes. And that's how, in my opinion, a lot of great music comes where you're just letting the theater of the mind express itself in imagery without having to tie it all together in a nice little narrative package. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was a way to just get out of the way of, you know, let my sort of prefrontal cortex rest <laughs> and let that subconscious mind emote, like mm-hmm. just put stuff out there. And, and so for me, the, the thing that opens that gate is the music, so I'll come up with some interesting chord progression or mm-hmm. pattern or rhythm, and that will start to... Do you it, write on paper? Yeah. You well, do. yeah, or, you know, just type it on the computer now, but mm. um, just depends well, on the not, environment. Not vocals, but what about music? Like, how do you get oh, music down? It seems so like, if you don't document it somehow, it's going to disappear, no? Yeah. A lot of... from I, My brain tends to retain it pretty well, but mm. it's kind of like... Um, What's a good analogy? Like, it did retain it better when I didn't have options <laughs> to, tr- to, to record it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now I find, and, and it's, because if I pick up a guitar, like, that's the thing, and this is, like, hard for people maybe to relate to, even other musicians sometimes. Like, if I pick up an instrument, chances are I could write a song. Like, I mean, just, like, really, it's that natural to me like that the floodgate so i tend to actually not do it because the frustration of writing so much content that i don't feel like i necessarily have an out for like the process of actually getting it consumer ready um is a lot more work than just the immediate gratification of writing Mm -hmm. it creative um, you know just putting it out there um, that I that I minimize how much I do it because I don't I don't need a library that's bigger than the library I have of songs that haven't been released to the public. I see. You know, like yeah. it's just this mountain of songs that they're all going to need their work to to be releasable, in my opinion, and uh, and I just don't want to have another one staring in me in the face, feeling mm-hmm. like oh I got to get that out sometime. When am I going to do that? When, you know, what does that look like? Yeah. So until I'm much more in the flow of write, record, release, write, record, release, write, record, release, and find that system, mm-hmm. you know, where I systematize it and make it much more fluid, yeah. um, I tend to like, I almost like have an aversion to picking it up because the instrument, a guitar mainly, mm-hmm. uh, because I know if I sit down and do that, stuff's going to start pouring out. It's just the way of it, right? So, but I don't write... Uh, I don't write music like I, I could, but it's way more like that to me is like, here's the idea run, 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 run. And then just like stepping into a sea of molasses blah, and like to slow that process down unnecessarily. Mm. I don't need to do that. Like I can have, I can record it and I can hire somebody on Fiverr to chart it. If I need string play, like people who are chart people yeah. to do that, I can hire somebody to chart it that easy yeah, and let them do what they do. And I don't have to be in the way of that at all. I can just keep in that flow space. Mm. So, but lyrics I write down yeah. cause you have to kind of craft that, you know, yeah. you just sort of it's like with, puzzle pieces. It's like puzzle pieces. Yeah. yeah. Whereas like I'll basically, yeah, I have an app on my phone and 
I mean, I'll do this even, we'll go to Guitar Center, my son and I, and we'll just be noodling around on stuff, and like an idea will hit. Yeah. And I, I go, good, okay, I got my phone, flip it up, I'm playing this really nice guitar, Guitar Center, and like, yeah. oh, if it's an open tuning, I'll I'll speak that in there. Okay, this is like a open G tuning, mm-hmm. capo on the third fret, this is kind of the chord shape, and then... And now I know where I'm going and I can just recreate that when I get back home or whatever. Wow. So that's sort of the process. And then, and then I know like I can come back to it cause that's how kind of, we were talking about the lyrics. That's how the lyrics start to evolve, right? That's yeah. the music inspires this feeling. It, em- yeah. it starts to inspire this kind of like, Oh, maybe it's got a, a sassiness to it or a sort mm-hmm. of a, you know, maybe there's a sexy quality to it. Maybe yeah. there's a, angsty or depressing or whatever that thing is, whatever yeah. those chords sort of elicit in myself. And then, then the syllables start to arrive. That's so interesting. You're yeah. literally explaining like, um, kind of like, uh, gosh, what are they called? Midwife. Like, you know, like how a birth happens, but yeah. with music. Yeah. And it's really fascinating to me because I have a few musician friends and I'm just always in awe at them. I'm like, if I could just do what you would do, <laughs> I would never need to work a day in my life. Uh, but it's, that's kind of like the capitalist in me that just maybe knows where to put that, the yeah. music or whatever. But um, I've always wondered, and this is like a lifelong question I've had is, how does someone create music? Where does it start? Because I don't not I do not have that brain. I yeah. so don't have that brain. And hearing you just even mention like, and then the syllables come, and then you put words like only twelve words can fit those syllables, and so all of a sudden this right. is what I'm trying to say. Like it's so unconscious to just yeah. remain in that pocket's got to be it's got to be beautiful. Well, timeless. That's the experience of that. You get into that zone where. I haven't felt that away. way in a long time. I know. It's really sad. Like, I used to feel that way. I'm trying to get back into writing. Like, I used to... I write scripts and make movies and stuff, but, like, I used to write a lot. Yeah. And I stopped. I don't know why. Um, and my instrument is, like, a notebook. Like, um, the way it feels, the the paper. Like, yeah. I can I'd be a, I can nerd out with, like, yeah. inks and stuff like that. <laughs> with inks. Yeah, like, sitting <laughs> like right... Like, whether it's a felt or a ball. Yeah. It all matters. Yeah. The drippingness. Like, it's... Totally. Mm, it's alchemy to me, but um, but I'm so out of practice. Like I, I just am not as committed. But staying in that pocket is what I'm really after. Yeah. And I don't have, you know, a filmmaker. You can be a you can make the one person movie, but it's just not the same as like, you know, on set with with different people and yeah. you know, kind of like it's more malleable, right? Like the clay of people and stuff, and being able to the art of discovery. Like I, mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to do it in this garage. You know, I could do a podcast by myself, yeah. but I'm not in that free form. I'm not in that pocket of just David Lynch, the filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, I have his piece over there in the living room. Um, calls it like the uh, ocean of subconscious, right? Yes. And like trying to catch big fish in that. And I, Beautiful. I love that. And I miss that. And nothing makes me feel that way anymore. So to hear mm. you kind of, articulate this is like i'm almost in i'm almost green with envy i really am because honestly that's what i live for is that that's the art of creation that's the art of um i mean you call it um you didn't call it discovery you called it it's just being in, in like this timeless state yeah i'm so envious of that 
That sounds lovely to me. You have to make the time for it because I've, since becoming a father and since being engaged in my challenges, those things don't necessarily pay the bills, as you understand. And um, and then when you've got all these other responsibilities, uh, time just disappears, yeah. and suddenly you're like, oh, I've got to. Whereas before it was like, oh, I've just got time. What am I going to do with it? Yeah, this. Now it's like, oh man, where am I going to carve out a chunk of time? And then I have that resistance because again, going back to that idea of like, and I'm going to create this thing that I then don't have the capacity at this moment to actually really materialize for the benefit of others. Mm-hmm. And, but, and then I have to reframe and be like, okay, well, but it's not for them necessarily. But there is that. I mean, we talked about this before where... When I was a kid, you know, on a on a on a uh, field trip, and I had my little cassette Walkman, yeah. you know, and you have these songs that just move you so deeply, and I have a lot of those memory associations around the movement of landscape. I think that's why I've been such a gypsy for most of my life. Uh, is that is that music becomes like a cinematic background for these landscapes and this these narratives and seeing and meeting all these different people and you don't know their stories, but you can conjure up mm-hmm. narratives around that. And, and so for me, I think it's for a long time, I wanted, I wanted to make music that had that cinematic quality. And I think when you write, at least when I write more from the subconscious, it allows people to project their own narrative upon these words that I've created. Like I have a song, it's called The Girl from Goodwater. And it's, <laughs> Goodwater is this bleak ass place in like Holbrook, Winslow, Arizona, where like Meteor Crater is. And mm. that Meteor Crater made sure that the landscape had very little to offer by way of <laughs> life, you know. And, um, but it's got its own beauty, desolate beauty. Mm-hmm. And so there's this little road and big sign says, you know, good water. And it's, I don't even, it's not a town. It's just like a, I don't know, an area or a road or something like that. So I was like the girl from good water, you know, it just had good alliteration too. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and so I wrote this whole song about it that really speaks to the place, mm-hmm. but people would listen to it and they had their own world conjured up. And I remember I made the mistake of like clarifying yeah. <laughs> and they, they were like, oh man, when I hear that it song. It wasn't your narrative anymore. No. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they were like, oh, when I hear that song, it's like, it makes me think of this, this, this. And I'm like, well, actually, yeah. you know, and, uh, and they're like, really? And just like that disappointment. I was like, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> I'll just let you. Do I never what you like to do. know where things come from, really. Yeah. No. Like, there, I, I never look up lyrics. Because mm. then you find out, oh, that's not what they're saying. Mm. They're saying, they're not saying, I'm sorry. They're saying, I'm lonely. Mm-hmm. Oh, that changes everything. Mm-hmm. I don't like it anymore. Interesting. You know, so I don't like it anymore. You try to protect that for sure. So I know where they're coming from. But that's part of the, I, I I learned that watching something I produced with an audience is that, oh, 400 people are experiencing 400 different events. Totally. And mine is the most irrelevant. Right. (laughs) It's over now. So it's really fascinating for sure. That's got to be part of the fun. Yeah. 
Yeah. Totally. So I really appreciate this, this side of you. Um, something we didn't really get to explore was like this music side. Um, because the way I discovered you was you kind of putting out an ad about video services, right? Right. And so I was like, oh, this guy's a video guy. And I have a, I will admit, I have a very narrow way of looking at video people. I assume they're all like me, like cinephiles and eat, sleep, and breathe movies. But it's so rare when someone comes from a multi disciplinary background and then all of a sudden i feel really insecure because i'm like damn i'm just the (laughs) just the video guy not the music guy and you know this guy's culture has been all around the world and everything but um so that's really the 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 pretense the frame in in which you and i kind of collided yeah and lo and behold as i started kind of probing and asking you more questions you started you started going even deeper about you know for lack of a better term, like the simulation, yeah. right? And that's that's been something I've been thinking about quite a bit. Um, off the cusp of our last conversation, which is, you know, I guess the being plugged in and and um, being in the what do they call it the mat the the, the mouse trap the mouse mouse maze the rat maze rat or whatever maze, yeah. yeah the matrix the matrix yeah. and uh, and being plugged out and. And um, kind of being more grounded. So, yeah, um, you hit me up later and said that you that you know this would be a great forum to maybe talk about those abstractions. Yeah. Right. Um, are you interested in making art, whether if it's music, you know, um, clay models? I don't know what <laughs> yeah. you know um, that that helps people unlock that. I mean, is that our place to? To plug, are we Morpheus? Is that, as an artist, are we supposed to help people get out? What do they call it? Like the red pill? Is that? Yeah. Where do you find yourself in relation to art and that, the great escape? Yeah. That's that's an interesting question because it, I've been forced as I've moved through various disciplines and iterations of my own expression. So like you asked for a brief bio, which mm-hmm. is very difficult for me. But basically, like, so I, I've done music professionally for a number of years. I've, I've done photography professionally. I'm an award-winning photographer, so you get that nice little title in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done public speaking on and off for years. Uh, I've done film, as you know. So I've worked on documentaries, features, reality TV, <laughs> like you name it, commercial, corporate, whatever. Um... I've done some painting, um, take, done a lot of acting like on the other side of the camera. So like acting courses and things like that. Never really, I've been on in some little clips and films and things like that, but I was more behind the camera. But I love taking acting classes because to me, those are like personal development classes. Mm-hmm. And in my, in my 20s, really, I discovered like Tony Robbins and a lot of like personal personal development work. I'm a big Tony Robbins guy. Yeah, he got was, his book up there. Actually. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a different book, but, uh, I've read all his books. Yeah. yeah it's he like, was like my, my, the dad I never had. To be yeah. Honest. Well, that's a good one to start with. <laughs> yeah. So I got into all of that stuff early on and like, you know, Wayne Dyer and, um, and I was, I got introduced to yoga pretty early on. So I started to get into, and actually Bill Monroe, the Navy SEAL guy introduced me to like my Emoto Musashi, you know, so I was reading the book of five rings at age 15 and I was reading, you know, the Tao of power. And so I was introduced to these really intense concepts pretty early on. Yeah. 
And I'd always just been interested anyway. I was really interested in, you know, I was grown, steeped in the church early on, always wondering why things didn't quite sit well with me, you know, interpretations and things like that that were kind of like handed to you and you're not supposed to question. And so none of that really sat with me. And then I discovered this kind of Eastern transformative, you know, inner transformation model. And I was like, this sounds really right on. Like this sounds more aligned with my experience. Mm. And you know, what I realized after the fact, or I kind of parsed all of that data (laughs) was that if you, if you sift through any of these texts, you find that that narrative is in there too. You can find it in the Bible, you can find it in the Quran, you can find it in all these different texts. It's just that some versions are more already stripped of the artifice. They're stripped of all the cultural baggage and the mm. historical baggage. And the politics. Yeah. It's just like they're, they've cleaned that stuff up already. They're just kind of going right to the message. So that, that thing of, and my own spiritual path was very much um, of, of an existential death, right? Which I think is the thing that most people... Uh, like people will give up their physical form before they will give up their belief form, their egoic form. Right. And we see that manifest in religious extremism, right? Hmm. Like they will blow their asses up in a crowd full of people before they'll question the story that's telling them to go blow themselves up. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So that was a really punchy thing for me to get my head around. It's like, what is that? And then you start to question, you start to look into the, the teachers who question the validity of this wellspring of the brain, <laughs> the mind, as if it is somehow the harbinger of all things true. It's like, well, because I think it, or because some dude said it a thousand years ago or 3000 years ago, somehow that makes it more valid. Right. Yeah. And it's like you realize, like, oh, the brain is optimized for survival. It's not optimized for truth. Right. right? And the apparatus that we occupy is not capable in any way, shape, or form of really discerning the fullness of the truth of reality. It, it right. parses reality into small, manageable bites so that it can function in the world and not be killed right. <laughs> and, and then eventually procreate. So what are we human? There's a great book from Wendell Berry called What Are Humans For? <laughs> yeah. And it's just kind of that question. It's like in the big scope of things, what are we really for? If you take away the religious narrative... What are we doing here? And like, if, if you want to just play with that idea, well, then it's to, to procreate, like to keep, yeah. keep life going like every other species. Like there's nothing... Pass the baton. Pass the baton, yeah. But if you go past that, it's like the next, you know, the super conscious aspect of that is like it is to awaken to the reality that this is one iteration of a vastly more blended and miraculous interpretation of reality or, or multiple realities. And I think when we get really stuck in a narrative about ourselves, like, you know, I'm not smart enough, I'm not fit enough, I'm uh, too poor, like whatever those negative things, or even the opposite is true. Like, I'm the best thing since sliced bread. and My I'm, dick is too big. Yeah, what am I going to do with this thing? Of course. It keeps, I pass out every time, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, you know, the, you know how it is. Obviously. Um, 
all those things are just one more little brick in the wall to, to quote Pink Floyd, right? They're, yeah. they're another... You think it's a distraction or what do you think? What is that? Yeah, you, a is word a you keep going back to is resistance that I want to touch on. Yeah. Did you ever read The War of Art? The War of Art. Yeah. No, that's on the reading list. Okay, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd never really looked at the word resistance that way until yeah. I read that book. And yeah. it's very like the professional eliminates all resistance or pushes through and the yeah. amateur just focuses on resistance and it says, right. you know, what was me? And they can't get out of that bubble, Victim. right? Pretty much. Yeah. Um, but what are these stories that we're telling ourselves that I'm not blank enough? What is this? What is it? I mean, it, it is. Why is it? It is a. It is obstacles in the in the greater collective sort of higher thinking, is it not? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's an it's a thing to hang your hat on, because hmm. in as much as it's uh, limiting, I think um, it's also comforting to to give yourself an out. Well, I'm just not creative. Like that's my thing, right? That's why. I bought the domain. You're not creative because that, that's what the book is about. Like it's this idea that I am not this thing, but, but it's like, it gives you an out. I'm like, okay, well I'm just not that. So I don't have to try. I don't have to make any effort, you know, but. And what do you think that is? Why does somebody want to do that? Unconsciously, of course. I think it's the same reason that people give up their power to preachers and teachers and politicians. Which and is what, gurus. why to be an automaton? It's a, it's a form of like laziness. Cognitive it's, dissonance. You familiar yeah, with that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah I, th I think it's like laziness. Humans can be very inclined towards taking the easy route and for biological reasons, there's no vilification in that. It, it takes an ex more extraordinary human being to go the extra mile. Yeah. Right? Yes. Like when we see those people exemplified in, in the public, we, we applaud that. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, the entrepreneur who really puts themselves out there and works however many hours more than we do a day and, and just like nose to the grindstone. We admire that. Or the, or the philanthropist who's just like, well, whatever. Some, what was, it? Some, was it some basketball player who just like took their whole earnings and donated it to you know, whatever, solving the climate thing or sure. feeding homeless people or whatever their philanthropic yeah. endeavor, like taking self-sacrifice. There's a thing that we really admire about those who are willing to sacrifice some portion of their comfort, let's say. Right. Their leisure. Yeah. And, yeah. and most of us are trying to find as much leisure as possible, right? Yeah. So I think there's... It's a quality that you have to nurture within yourself above and beyond your biological imperative, mm -hmm. right? And that takes a certain awareness because most people just move with whatever the biological imperative is. There's nothing that jumps in the way to say, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe you should live, what is that quote? Um, Live simply so that others may simply live. Have you ever heard that? Oh, no. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Makes it's sense. Like, it's like, you don't, do you really need all that? Like, what yeah. if you took some portion of that and helped up somebody else's game? But I'll tell you the reason why we're such in such scarcity is because there are some fundamental things we're just, as but a culture, But it's emotional scarcity, isn't it? Yeah. Because in America, I mean, try starving to death. Yeah. It's pretty hard. Totally. You've got to go out of your way. Like, there's... 
there's an abundance that we're just I don't know. Absolutely. Abundance wasting. of stuff we don't need. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Without a doubt. But that scarcity is uh, like a mindset, if anything, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's a, it's a scarce, it's kind of like, yeah, you can <clears throat> gorge yourself on Cheetos. Like there's an abundance and they're cheap. Right. But, and, and there's, and there's that emotionally, the equivalent of that emotionally. There's a lot of stuff but that you could gorge yourself on, but it's devoid of nutrition. So that's that whole thing of slowing down, actually being present, actually connecting with the people you're in communion with, nurturing those relationships, paying attention to your kids, paying attention to your wife or your husband, the relationships that you're in, being a good friend, being there for people, um, putting yourself out. You know, and this is the, th- I think this is the greatest sort of takeaway from my, my years in the church and that sort of translation that took place years later in my twenties, where it was like this Christ character, this Christ consciousness, that's mm-hmm. kind of what they bandy about in mm-hmm. certain communities is, is, is about also knowing like, honoring the fact that you have incarnated, but also knowing that that's a temporary piece of real estate that you're occupying, Mm -hmm. that really you are the source of all things. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you have that kind of relationship, Mm -hmm. there is no other, right. So that allows you to do things without being, um, martyr. Like we use that term martyr for some generally in a, (laughs) not a positive way because it's like, they're letting you know every time they're, oh, the things I've done for you. And if you only knew and that it, but that's not, that's not what it really is. Like it is to realize that the fundamental thing that makes you up is the fundamental thing that makes everything up. And that's your fundamental connection. So when you, when you say sacrifice, it's like, well, you're not, you're not really, your ego may be sacrificing something, mm. but your fundamental isness is everything all the time. Yeah. You're that there is no, there's no, there's no give and take. Like, yeah. it's kind of like, it's always ever there, you know, in every direction all the time, Hmm. like that full divine thing where words, like we're, I'm having the same, the words start to fail because words are a very binary thing. Like we've come up with words because these are our mouth noises. These are our grunts and groans and sounds so that we can somehow try to relate to each other or communicate information to keep us from getting killed by a bear or whatever the Mm -hmm. thing is, you know, and it's just evolved into this very complex thing, but fundamentally that's what it is. And when you surrender that, that's why I say, like say like the, the, the prison of language Mm -hmm. is a real problem. You know, some people are so caught up in the words that they miss the essence. Right. Right. It's like, okay, I said this thing. That might be an internet thing. An internet I, thing? I think so, because yeah. you're when you're communicating, it's usually words. Right. And they're so unpredictable. Like the right. the intent cannot be found, right? Absolutely. But when you're when you're it's doing like something like this, emotional. it's much <laughs> it's much easier to know what your intent is yes. in person with our antennas next to each other. Yeah. Versus over the internet, if I'm going to con- try to convey a nuance, it's probably going to get lost. Let me ask you something while I have this question yeah, in mind. Sure. I don't want to project my, well, I will say 
just so I can unload the gun of this question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm apolitical. Like, I don't give a fuck about politics and the, you know, my side is more right than your side yeah. way. Yeah. I don't care about that yeah. fight at all. Threw in the towel, like, in 04. Yeah. Um, during, like, the invasion of the Iraq War. I remember just being like, my voice doesn't really matter. <laughs> right. Um, but that's just my shit. Um so, but I'm also like a wallflower. I like listening to everybody's opinions. Um, but if, I'm, I'm curious if you could ask um, our current president any question and have the form and the time to articulate an abstraction, which is what you're doing right now. Like, yeah. what would that question be, and where would you like that to go? Like, what would you want him to walk away with if you had that access? What question? I have to probably sit with that one for a minute. I mean, honestly, what I would want to do is... While you, I'll let you chew on that. Yeah. You know, because that is a loaded question. Yeah. Um, especially since, you know, I'm giving you this frame of you can only ask one, right? Right. But um, the reason why I ask is because it's hard to carve out time and... Um, convey these thoughts that are that are very articulate and very complex and uh, i heard a drummer say complexity is the enemy of execution right Mm. so if we can't talk to our children this way like how are we ever going to talk to someone in power right you know to get to a result that's positively charged right that 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 can lead to this domino effect in a in a good way that can impact our culture our media, just the overall American health, right? The mm-hmm. consciousness, the state mm-hmm. of the culture. Um, so it, it's it's heavy, but you know, if if someone who's an artist like Kanye West can find him his way into the White House, leverage his credibility right. Right. to say, "Help me with prison reform" or something. There's got to be hope that our president has that is intelligent enough to say, "I want to find the smartest person that knows that's an expert in this field and." have them do their thing. And if I can make a buck out of that, or at least look good in the public out of that, I'm interested in that, right? Like for the brownie points or something. But, you know, this is a guy that, that is, um, throwing just these Molotov cocktails into the media and just like scattering the cockroaches. And I think half of it is for sport. Sure. The other half is maybe a smoke screen. I mean, I don't know, but there's a part of me that is kind of, in awe at that <laughs> spectacle of like, right. wow, you really have to be in an eighth degree black belt in, in media manipulation to do that. I respect that as a, as an anarchist myself, sometimes yeah, yeah. it's like, Whoa, you can do that. It's pretty neat. Like fuck the system up. But at the same time, it's like, I've never felt so disconnected from people sure. in terms of the, the matrix. I mean, yeah, yeah. I've never felt more disconnected. I remember the day after, um, president Trump was, a um, elected when he wasn't the president yet, but, um, just the day after he was voted in or whatever, the morale was so fucking low. Like it was so memorably low, but I remember having the thought, um, now's the time to really triple down on enthusiasm, positivity, optimism. Like I'm not going to let this defeat me. Now's the time to, invest during times of maximum pessimism and like mm. i'm gonna now's the time dude. to 
to, to be heard in a weird yeah. way. Yeah. But I think a lot of other people felt that, but took it from this place as now's the time to wave the flag of being a victim and hurt. Right. And this will never happen again type thing. And oh, I think that's just a missed opportunity, a misplaced, I don't know, sense of, I don't know, uh, self-righteousness or something. I, I don't presume to have any of the answers. Yeah. I'm more of a, let's ask different questions kind of guy. Yeah. But um, so in that pretense, you know, like what is, what would be like the first down? Oh, you don't like football, but what would be like the, the forward, <laughs> the forward. Like it. I just, yeah. You, but what, I'm trying to think we of use another metaphor. Analogy, yeah, another what would metaphor. be like the best way to, to get closer to, um, like maybe your macro goal, whatever yeah. that would be. And how would you want to do that with the president? Honest, honestly, I don't. So my view of the system as it stands is that it is to the future what uh, the horse and buggy was in the 18th century. <laughs> like it just, it doesn't, it has a life span that's, on the downward spiral, you know? Um, and I don't, I don't abide the idea that one man has all the answers or solutions. It's it's an absurd notion to think that. Um, and you can only relate to what you can relate to your reference points. Like, I don't feel like that guy has enough reference points to even, it's kind of like if you're Michael Jackson, man, you you don't know what the fuck life looks like yeah. not Michael Jackson, right? Yeah. Your reference points are so skewed in relationship to what would n- people would consider normal life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that unless you have those reference points, you just can't relate. But that's your linear mind. <laughs> so, I mean, kind of the, the deeper thing is... I think, again, going back to the war of words, that's, we have to move way past this, um, the cerebralness of our culture. Like my buddy, who is a consummate adventurer and, uh, you know, just very wise individual, well-traveled, um, very worldly guy. He, he always separated things into or cultures into head cultures and heart cultures right mm. western is very head oriented very logic reason right which you should have i mean i'm not bagging on that but then there's heart cultures which are tend to be like the indigenous cultures that we know and and when you find a nice balance of those you find a pretty even keel humanistic values oriented culture um if it's extreme one way or the other Eh, you know, I mean, like in Papua New Guinea, it's like if from tribe to tribe, if there's an offense, like somebody could come and and just, you know, machete your arm off in, in payback, right? Or I mean, it's, it can be really hardcore, but, and, and it's inflammatory. It's like, ah, th- there's no sense of like, let's logically, let's talk this out, right? It's yeah. just like, no, I'm offended. There, therefore, something must be done, you know, and it's usually violent, right? Yeah. And and then it can be far swung the other way too, where it's like um, we're just t- there's not enough action. There's too much talking. Um, the talking is all rational and logical, and it's not accounting for people's depth mm-hmm. and and um, like what's what's going on in here. I think culturally we're moving much more into a 
we're moving more into a heart oriented way of happy, having to, op, you know, to from work in the world because I think that our, our reason and logic has been at the expense of a lot of really important things. And those are just simple things like our relationships to each other, our relationships to the earth, um, our relationships to like what genuinely gives us satisfaction on a day-to-day basis. We've been so stripped of that because the industrial revolution really started that, you know? I mean, and when you're in survival mode, you know, you're, that's what you're thinking about. Like, fuck, I got to get my kids out on the farm. We got to do this crop. Who knows if the weather's going to hold my cow's sick, blah, blah, blah. You know I mean? It goes that. And then it's like industrial age. Oh, abundance, abundance. Like if I go to my job eight, 10 hours a day, I can afford the house and the burbs and the new car and, you know, raise my, we just get these indoctrination models. Right. Um, and, and then we just drag that baggage along, but all of that stuff has been on the backs of something, either on the backs of other humans, or it's been on the backs of the planet, back of the planet itself. It was just merciless cons- consuming, you know, that consumer's mentality. So I think, you know, short answer is like, I would like to dose that guy with psilocybin or ayahuasca or something like that, because I think he needs a reference well beyond what language can convey. Mm. And I think pretty much every politician in Washington could do with the same. And the great thing about that is that the more disconnected you are from your heart, the more horrifying those experiences are, which bad is good. trips, bad trips. Yeah. yeah. You had bad trips. No, no, not really. Interesting. I mean, because I, because first of all, I've never, I didn't go into it until later. Yeah. So I, there was a maturity and an awareness. You were grounded. It was grounded. And I had already had a really intense, basically, uh, for lack of a better, like transcendental meditation experience that mm-hmm. shot me into the ether of undifferentiated consciousness and pure love, dissolving into a sea of pure <laughs> love, right? It's total woo. But that was the feeling and it was a visceral feeling, a cellular thing that I took back into my body that I was just buzzing from and there was no substance involved at all, right? But I would have realized is like, A, that can become your next drug. So then you spend all your time trying to get back to that, not not the point. (laughs) And and B, um, that it it was meant to just ground me further in a sense of what's possible without having to make that something I have to chase around. Like, it's just like, okay, now, you know, this is, this is where it's at. You know, this is what the other side feels like. And that feeling component is the thing I think that we as a culture need to dial into because like when you have people, like you said, man, like the internet, it's people just battling and saying shit they would never say to each other in, in, Mm -hmm. in person, right. You know, and, and not understanding like, like these are the bricks, you know, it's like, oh, I believe this. And now I have this brick that is like part of my foundation that I need to defend against the enemy. But when we strip away most of that stuff, we get, we, we do realize how much we really are just trying to get the same things, you know, as extreme as that can be. I mean, from culture to culture, I mean, a lot of people like, you know, the race thing is like such an obviously big issue and it seems to get, has these ebbs and flows of like uh, inflammatory, you know, and and then it kind of backs off a little bit and then somebody inflames it with more mm-hmm. fodder, you know. 
but it's like, I think mostly what people are actually struggle with is, is uh, culturalism or culturism. Like it's mm. like, Oh, you know, cause if you're loaded, it doesn't matter. Right. Right. It's like Very rich true. people from here and rich f- people from Saudi Arabia seem to get on just fine. Right? right. You know? So it's like, it's not so much of that. It's, it's more like, okay, where is there a cultural thing that is abrasive to my own sentiments and feels like a threat to me. Mm-hmm. But again, these things don't, they feel like a threat because you've got something to defend. Mm-hmm. You know, if you stop having to have to be right, right. About whatever your thing is, your belief about God, your belief about politics, your belief. Of, when you stop having to defend those things, it's like, what's left. It's just, it's just beingness. It's just you're like, okay, do I have food? Do I have water? Do I have, you know, and yeah, it does like for a long time, I sort of disconnected broadly. Just same like, fuck it. Like I don't have a dog in the fight. Yeah. <laughs> and, and after I had that experience with the meditation. That's, that's, that sentiment that I shared might be a part of the overall arc yeah. for, for most people. It's like step number eight. Yeah. You know, and I still got a long, a long way to chart as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I don't know what those next steps are going to be, but it sounds like it's relatable maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, I, I'm trying to remember where I, what the source is, but essentially it was like the idea of enlightenment, let's say was to, and I think there's a reference for that. It's kind of be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves or something like gentle as a dove. That's a, a you mm-hmm. know, a scriptural res- reference, but essentially it was this idea of knowing the full, knowing and accepting the full horror of the human experience or the mammal experience, not just the human experience, but the con- the consciousness that we bring to it yeah. adds to the horror of it. Potentially if you take that in. Yeah. Right. So to, to, be with that and yet not be destroyed by it. Cause it's like I, most, so many people I know would rather just keep their head in the sand. Like, I don't want to talk about those things. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, I'm going to give you in full denial of those things. Right. If the, you know, the, um, the economy's in collapse or the <laughs> ecology is in collapse. Like I just don't want to go there cause it's too depressing. Right. So they mm-hmm. just want to avoid that subject. Yeah. But it's like, you gotta, you know, as like an alcoholic, you gotta admit there's a problem. Right. <laughs> you gotta start there. Yeah. And, and is it a, who's it a problem for? Right. Well, okay, that's humans, right? Um, every other species, right? And there's gonna be winners and losers on all of those fronts, right? Yep. So, so the kind of enlightened, I guess, approach would be like, okay, these, are th- these things are happening. I might, you know, as a, as a bodhisattva, your job is to sort of become enlightened and then return to help liberate other people. Well, what does that look like? It, it means giving them a reference point that allows them to feel their security from a source other than the world. It's simple as that. That's true. Your security has to rely, and you know, if you're a Christian, that would be Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. If you're uh, Islam, you know, it'd be Muhammad. It, you know, your faith in that otherworldly thing, you know, uh, being or identity or uh, uh, like philosophy, like that's the thing that you connect to, and that gives you a sense of, <laughs> oddly enough, groundedness, right? For me, it's interesting because like, 
I don't know. Like that, and I was really troubled by that. I spent a lot of time trying to know to like the I want the definitive answer. And when that, when I realized like that game is not winnable, like my mm-hmm. brain is not capable of knowing the truth. Mm-hmm. Right? I have to surrender to the mystery. Right. That was the most liberating thing ever. And it's the most terrifying because your moral compass is utterly destroyed. In the process of losing yourself and surrendering that, uh, uh, the sky's the limit. Good, bad, or indifferent. You can go any direction you want to go. And, and there's no longer the fear of retribution. It's like, yeah, well, I could do this thing and other humans would judge me and maybe they'll throw me in prison or maybe they'll hang me because I've done this heinous thing in their eyes. But I'm not worried about God. I'm not worried about hell. I'm not worried about any of those things, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, in a sense, you become a sociopath. <laughs> like that's how you would pathologize it, right? Yeah, sure. But, but then after that sort of sifts out, you're just sort of left with a blank canvas. And then like what's really true for you starts to bubble to the surface. Like with that clarity starts to allow you to, to create from a place of, I don't know if you want to say surrender, oddly, you know, or a, a place that feels more in alignment with what's true than what has been handed to you generation after generation that you're just carrying around because that's what we do, right? Well, I mean, can we can we condense that into a pamphlet, you know? Or is that no. a journey that has to be that journey has to thoroughly. be. Everyone has to take their own road. Like, that's the trip. There is no, there's no one size fits all. There isn't, like you have to, you have to, like that's the hero's journey. That's the Joseph Campbell stuff. That's the, like you've got to be willing to stand on the, on the cliff and look into the void and jump, not knowing what's down there and trust that in that process, you will be transformed into another being, you know, another version of that. And that's something, honestly, that has to continually take place. Like I mm-hmm. was talking about the deathbed confessional, like that's a practice yeah. that I do to like reorient my compass. How do you know when to do it? It just starts to build up, you know, it's like, I'm just so off course right now and you can just feel it. I mean, for me, I just feel it in every cell of my body, you know, it's like, okay, so I have to, I have to take the time, create the space and you know, maybe it's, you know, I've experimented, I started much later, but ex- experimented with plant medicine kind of as a researcher. It was never like the, let's just use it to party, you know, I mean, I, it was more sacred than that. Mm. And, uh, and I, again, coming at it from a pure meditative standpoint, like not using any assistance, I felt like it was cheating. But then I realized after I experimented and explored it, I realized like it's it's not cheating it's a whole different animal these things have you know a gazillion years of of data stored in their it's, dna it's technology it's isn't technology it? man yeah. yeah it's a good way yeah. to put it and, and so you want to access that data and each one of them is a different software yeah. you know like so you are getting windows in through that portal that are different from the others and and so yeah you use any of those things mindfully and i think they can really have huge huge impact really interested in the idea of what what our what the lineage of our DNA contains and how we can activate that like as as almost like a portal 
without any uh, substance, but really utilizing meditation and even sound waves, light waves, just like all of these kind of really cutting edge things to like start to awaken, you know, cause so much of that stuff is just chilling. Yeah. You know, it's like switches that turn on and off. Environmental things cause those switches to turn on and off, like yeah. emotional things, how we re- re- relate, <laughs> relate or react to these experiences. That's like Jay Gould, I think it was called, punctuated equilibrium. So in terms of evolution, you know, a species may stay in a static evolutionary, like not much growth or movement or morphing or what do you call it, like a genetic... Um, Mutation, not much mutation happening until something happens on the outside world and then like shit's got to change or Mm. the species dies off. They've got to, something's got to start shaking and moving and, you know, and mutating to see like what iteration of us is going to move into the next generation because clearly the environment that our previous generation started with and the the dna they had happening then is not going to fare well in this new environment right and that's what we're doing now with all these technological things you know all these so we got to figure out how to navigate that but i think there's multiple roads that it can look like it's not necessarily like these guys are going to win this version of us is going to win it's like right now we're in the wild west yeah. And it's like, mm, there's a lot of ways this thing can go. And we've got to collectively, I think, decide how we're going to do that. And to me, that's, that's utilizing the technologies that we're clever, our clever minds have created in a really wise and judicious way, which, which means we have to abandon in large part this idea that a scarcity is the fundamental baseline from which every decision is made, which is the money system, right? Greed, you know, right. consumerism, like all of this kind of stuff and really reorient our value st- structure to say like, okay, what actually is the most important thing? Cause there's plenty of research to say, what do people care about when they're taking their last breath? What are they, they're not thinking like, fuck, I wish I would have got that boat. You know, yeah. they're not, you know, it's like, they're thinking like, God, I wasted a lot of time amassing vast amounts of wealth and I'm not against wealth, but like it's the conscious, like the, one of the things that stuck with me as a kid was like, it was never about the thing, but the consciousness that you brought to the thing. And that was a very Eastern thing. That's huge. It's huge. Oh yeah. I think about that even now for sure. Um, I want, I feel, don't you think it's going to be the, the consciousness or the team that has the best propaganda is going to win? Well, that's a good question. I mean, Louis C.K. has this joke that Christianity won, Mm. that, you know, we're in the year 2019. Yeah. Christianity won. That's that's their year. Yeah. You know, Um, and it's a funny joke, but at the same time, it's like they went to war for it. They the separation between church and state like they for a lack of a this is very cynical, but I am a Christian for but for lack of a better term, like they had the best propaganda, they had the best marketing they had the best <laughs> Christian brand ambassadors. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, so they, they won, basically. Um, America uses Hollywood as its propaganda machine. Totally. You know, like all the other countries look at our movies and they think, wow, I want that. You know. Um, and American the show, corporations. The show that I was just watching was talking about, which I thought was a fascinating lens, was 
Birth of a Nation was like the first superhero movie, and it was about like you know the the Ku Klux Klan and yeah. how you know that it's very it's white nationalist propaganda or whatever. Um, but at the same time, like that reinvigorated the KKK and stuff like that. And I'm like, man, that is so institutionalized in our world, in this country. How do we impact this message? You know, how do you intend to do that? And why don't you have a podcast? Right. I did for a while. You have a podcast? I had one. What was it called? The Wisdom Distillery. Is it still out there? That's a good name. Yeah, thanks, man. I had a cool little logo for it, too. Um... I'm, the thing is, I come up with names for things, and then I do them, and then, well, in this case, I, so I went through a separation, and so I had a, my man cave, like I had my production facility, which I lost, so then it was just like survival mode, trying to rebuild and like find a home base. I'm I'm really good with, what's the word? Um... I'm highly adaptable and I'm, and I'm very good with, um, the unknown, but I also realize it saps a lot of creative energy, you know, towards just like reconfiguring and, you know, so I'm been on this process of trying to create, uh, a comfortable foundation for myself from which to rebuild. Yeah, this is the what the, a, a counselor told me, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Before yeah. you can get to the top, self-actualization, you got to make sure that you got bread and all that. Yeah. Like I use the analogy, like it's like, you know, how you in these sort of new workout methodologies where, you know, there's, there's the ball or the rolly thing that you then stand on the board on top of that. And then you're meant to like lift weights on top of that. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah. and like, for me, I feel like I'm standing on that top, that, system that apparatus and like trying to reach for the golden ring yeah you know and it's like well that's way too shaky of a foundation to be doing that but i do it anyway because i'm you know high tolerance for risk so i just and some headway is made Mm -hmm. you know but it's it's not as much as when i've been in a situation where it's like oh okay all of that stuff's covered now i can just like rock it forward yeah and but it's also been these many years about clarifying the vision because like i've gone into all these different verticals you know i was doing the music and there was something about that it had its moments but i was just like this is this doing it this way is not sustainable for me Mm -hmm. i mean at the time like playing bars until 2 a.m and being covered in smoke was not something I was a fan of on any level and playing to people who weren't really that interested or playing to nobody sometimes or, you know, just collecting a paycheck. You know, it's like, well, we play a wine bar. There's three people there. They're paying you, Mm -hmm. but they don't really care. It's like, this is not why I do it at all. Why would I even bother doing that? So then film, same kind of thing, like all these different iterations. And what I realized was the thing that's most important to me, like you kind of, your question touches on this. This is a roundabout answer, but um, what I really want to do is get really clear about what consistently puts me in that timeless space and then do that as a way to help other people achieve that same end. And so part of that process is really almost a therapeutic um, deconstruction mm-hmm. of 
egoic narrative. Yeah. <laughs> Golly, yes. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then creating literally and figuratively a blank canvas opportunity to, to rebuild and recreate in a way that's as true as you are able to access in that moment. So like, I'm not the kind of artist who I just want to make, I'm not, I'm not that self-absorbed. Like it's just, I can't un, tether myself to the audience to the relationship there like mm -hmm. the other people it took me a long time to give a shit about the audience yeah i didn't in the beginning yeah i didn't like in a way you have to curate your own audience yes and then Without humanize them and say oh i i care about these people yeah but when you know to reverse engineer that i didn't know where to start and i didn't have I didn't know who the, who the audience was. It right. was an audience of one for a right. long time, but that's not sustainable. Yes, yeah, so exactly. Yeah. yeah, the economic force. It took me a long time to care about the audience. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's hard because it's an abstraction at first. Yeah. And I think that's where the people who do a really great job of it don't think of it like that. Yeah. It's like the same kind of skill that a performer who can get up there in front of nobody or people who are maybe apathetic and perform like it's their last performance. Like mm -hmm. that's a, that's a skill. <laughs> like that's a, that's a, there's a magic in there. And part of that magic is like tapping into the, the ether like that, mm -hmm. that fundamental place where you're just, you go, go so far out into your fucking magic. Mm -hmm. That energy is compelling. It's like that cliche about like, you know, the person who, you know, can light up the room, right? Mm -hmm. You just come in because you're so tapped in mm -hmm. that that sympathetic resonance starts to just like seep into the consciousness of the other people around. Yes. And then like some people are really turned off by it because they're so out of touch right. that you become almost offensive to them. Yeah, because you you become like this beacon and they project their insecurities onto yeah. that. Yeah, you're like a threat, Right. You know, so yeah, for me, it's like, I want to help give people a window of what is possible, not just individually, but, but what is possible for us as a species. Cause I think the fundamental thread that has kept me in the game mm -hmm. was this sense of even as a child of going, having some reference for what was possible, even though I grew up in a, I grew up in a very mediocre town and a mediocre life, I would say like nothing really extraordinary. Um, hmm. But something in me said, and, and there had to have been examples that was just like, we could do better, you know, just looking out in the world and thinking, really? this is like the apex of civilization, yeah. <laughs> you know, and maybe it was books or something, or maybe it was great myths that I had read or something that I had had access to that said like, no, humans are capable of way more, but we can gravitate towards laziness, which is conservation of energy, which is a survival instinct. Right. Hmm. So I, but I, there was something in me again, that sort of like, not being bound by the fear of the unknown, yeah. not being hemmed in by that. I relate that, to that. Yeah, yeah, it's powerful. Curious. It, I think it come down to curi comes down to curiosity. Like that's you don't think a, you don't think uh, this is a projection, but you don't think a little bit has to do with like 
maybe self-harm of like masochism in a way of like, Mm. I want to jump in that. It's probably not good for me, but I also don't care Mm. because it's not going to kill me. And if it does, eh. Right. (laughs) Eh. Yeah, I could I could see an argument for that for sure. Like for for me, the part of it is that yeah, of, of just I don't care yeah about the the you know the the outcome the 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 har- the potential harm mm-hmm. you know of jumping over the barbed wire fence. Mm-hmm. But I got to get to the other side. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to stop me. Yeah, I'm gonna totally. get poked. I could get tetanus. Right. You stay here and be concerned about that. <sighs> I'm gonna. I need to get to the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Tetanus. No, the drive to get to the other side. I think it's just um, for me. It's a part of it has to do with this very juvenile. I'm gonna do it because you can't. Hmm. I don't even know if I can, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try to do it. Yeah. A lot of it was just like audacity. Mm-hmm. I, th- I found for me anyways, um, that's, that's sort of nobody's going to stop me, mm-hmm. you know, um, sort of an overcompensation to resistance. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. I asked my friends recently, um, to describe like the first three words that came up in their mind in, in thinking about me, how I come off, mm-hmm. whatever. And um, one of my friends back in Arizona, he said, I give you one. He said, Promethean. Ooh. And I was like, I love that. Because it is something like I mm, think there it is. I've always felt like I want to be the one... <laughs> Who goes and gets the fire for the for the yeah the people who just don't have the courage to do it, like who don't right. have the risk tolerance. So there is that desire to be an inspiration, like to say, listen, if I can fucking do it, I'm a train yes. wreck. If I can do it, you can do it. You've got right. way more resources, you've got yes. like all things going for you. There's something altruistic about that. Yeah. 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 It's, there's it, some honor in I that. I wanna raise the bar. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like if if the bottom rung can be like, I always use this analogy in music. Like if the worst thing you ever heard on, on the radio was Radiohead, like the bass, bass, bassist music that you could hear uh, (laughs) was as good as Radiohead is Yeah. like, and everything else was better than that. It's kind of like if the worst food you could ever get anywhere was the equivalent of what? What would you say in Austin would be? I mean, gosh, I don't know. I mean, you're asking the wrong guy, right? <laughs> like the worst. Um, I still eat Fruit Loops. Right there, you go. Fair yeah. enough. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Well, they are tasty, though. I know. Yeah, and they soak milk up really well. They really do. <laughs> Hi. Hey, bud. Guys, I saw a cookie cutter fish. Okay. Oh my gosh, that's pretty it's profound. My favorite fish. Cookie and cutter fish? I guess so. Oh, Holy smokes. Man, that's amazing. Oh, good. Goodness. Well, as long as their teeth that's are healthy. Amazing. I like it. All right. Thank you. What a big, bright, shining star, your he boy. Is. He's got such a radiance, man. Oh, man. You know, when they say that um, 
so I hang out with a lot of military folk. And one thing that comes up often inside the community is about being a direct reflection of leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I meet other parents, you can tell how involved they are or aren't with, you know, by their kids and how they act and, and just by the way the kids walk around, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, and so judging by, by your son alone, like I can tell you, you put a lot of love in that boy. All of it. And that's good. All of it. (laughs) That's really good, man. So keep doing what you're doing for sure. Cause he's, I have a, and I'm sure you do too. Um, just a, just a big radiating antenna when it comes to people and their, just the, the energy that they have yeah. inside and what they let out. Yeah. And he's just, just beaming a, for sure. So that's beautiful, man. Golden light. Yeah. A lot of people like just honestly cr- try to crush the light of little, little kids it's for their own self. Terrifying. I mean, it's, it's still going on, you yeah. know, uh, not just from when I grew up and how I grew up, but there's just people who aren't her just passive, you yeah. know, at the very least. And that's like some, that's, that's harmful to me, but, um, I agree so, I, yeah. I, to me and you know, you, if you're a conscious being, if you're a self-aware being, you go through the process of doing your own work as an individual and trying to try and mitigate at least, uh, the things that were sort of handed to you that didn't, weren't helpful mm-hmm. and the, and the things that you adapted and adopted that were coping mechanisms at the time and had their value in the time, but, but lose their value, but again, feel like, um, a safe haven, right. you know, the go-to place cause it's the known. Right. Yes. And so for me, uh, that was a shit ton of work. <laughs> and then, and then being in a relationship with somebody in an intimate dynamic like that. I mean, I, I always say like all the women that I've been with, in a long-term capacity have all been my greatest teachers by intent or by default. Yeah. Uh, there was sometimes where, I mean, it's like the, a good student finds a teacher in everyone and everything, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be a good student. You know, it just was important to me to glean as much. And I think that's a byproduct of, of a really a survival mechanism as a kid being a very uncertain situation in many times and having to, having to be able to assess the situation really quickly mm-hmm. and discern it in a way that's going to keep you safe. Right. Yeah. So that translates as an adult, um, into not just taking things at face value, but really trying to get behind it, which also can make you a very suspicious human being and a very kind of skeptical human being. Mm-hmm. And so you got to parse that too and not let yeah. that then become a, a crutch or a burden or a, a way to close off from a situation. Mm-hmm. And so you do all that work with a partner and then you think, ah, oh, I fucking got this dialed in. Right. And then, yeah. and then you have a kid and you're like, Oh, okay. It's a whole new layer, a whole new level of stuff. But I, I called that kid in. Like I really, yeah. he was an intentional being. And we had that discussion. He was the deathbed mm. confessional, right? He was mm. like, all right. Called him in. I I'm, like that. I'm, a, I'm in this position. My life is ebbing from me at this moment. What am I regretting not having done? And this is in my forties through most of my life thinking, I don't ever want to have kids. Like it's too much responsibility. I kind of did it as a teenager with my brothers Um, you know, I've been enjoying this freedom and adventure and knocking all these things off my bucket list. That's kind of a selfish place. Totally selfish place. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I, with the realization was just like how much, you know, I'm sitting down there in Mexico on this beautiful beach thinking like, 
I'm just doing all this stuff. I think I'd probably just gotten off of like a shark dive or something, you know? And I was like, these things are not having the thrill, Mm -hmm. you know, that they that they used to have. Like, it's just like, how much can I entertain myself here? Wherever I go, there I am. And I was like, okay, well, what, what would I really regret not having had the experience of? And he showed up. He was just like, yeah, having specifically having a son, because I think it's really for me to raise yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not that he's a functionary to that. I don't want to put him in that position, but, but mm-hmm. it's like, but he is serving that purpose for yeah. me. I he's, mean, he is little John. Yeah. He is. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you the most, one of the most profound experiences he was, I don't know how old, maybe one and a half or something like that. And we tried, we tried to do the thing where, you know, have him, cause he was co-sleeping with us. And and so it's like the cry it out, right? Put him in the crib and let him build up that ability to just self soothe. Mm-hmm. And he was just crying, crying, and you know. But we we didn't do him in another bedroom where we could shut it out. Ooh, that's he was hard. in the same room, and it's, it's like horrible. And both of us are just like, oh, mm-hmm. is this the right thing? What are we doing? You know. And I remember, and I was just getting like agitated, agitated because it was this push and pull of like, what's the right thing? I don't know what the right thing is, and also I can't sleep, and I'm getting angry, and and I remember going over there, and I was like feeling that rage in my body, and then I picked him up, and then I was like, in that moment, as I picked him up, I was like, love him like you wished you would have been loved, in that moment, because I I wasn't. My dad came and screamed at me to shut up, right? So. In that moment, I just so softened, and he's crying and wailing, and I just held him against my body, and I was just loving him like I was loving myself, you know. And then over time, he softened. Profoundly healing, you know? Of course, of course. Absolutely. I mean, and it's a gift that keeps on giving, for sure. It's never going to go away. I mean... Do you ever think about being a grandfather? Yeah, it's a hard stretch. <laughs> That's a hard one, right? Because I mean, a, um, don't you want to stick around for of that? Of course. Don't you want to yeah. see the kind of dad this guy's going to be? Totally. Yeah. I mean, a I think about it just because I'm going to be 50 next year, and uh, <laughs> and so yeah, I'm just thinking, man, he if he waits as long as I waited, we better really get solid on our anti aging technology. Because <laughs> I uh, think you're going to live to be 110. I, you know, for I'll sure, for I'll take whatever. Keep I can taking get. your Flintstone vitamins, yeah, for sure. Yeah, my my little gummy vitamins that I take from him. There you go, <laughs> just for the taste. Yeah, they taste yummy. Mostly about taste. Yeah, but John, yeah, I think about that all the time. I, I want to ask sure. you, man, like, what what are you working on right now? I know you're trying to to build a foundation, and you can't, you know, you can't go forward in a car if the engine's not there, if the yeah. tires aren't checked, yeah. if the you know, all everything like that, obviously. And I know you want to move forward, but you know, anything you're working on that, that these listeners, trust me, the type of listeners that I have, they're like, who knives has met his match that who is yeah. this guy? Where has he been? You know, so people are going to want to, you know, see what you got going on, you know, whether if it's a project or maybe a book in the making or something like that, yeah. or whatever it is you got, you got working on right now. I mean, what, what's, what's cooking in this? What's stew? cooking? What's cooking? What's marinating? Well, thank you for asking. I appreciate that very much. I have, you know, as a creative, it's just always uh, a process of trying to refine what are the most important things and kind of going back to that, what we were discussing earlier, how do I get my creative juice 
satisfied and, and the fulfillment from that. You know, what I love is creativity, art, expression, personal development, personal growth work, deep work, um, travel, adventure, exploration. Like those are the fundamental things and connection, you know, deep connection with people. So the way I'm, I feel like I'm putting these things together is, is through this work called um, Conscious Creators Camp. So it's an opportunity for people to come to a, a destination-oriented place. So it's like in a comfortable zone outside your comfort zone, right? Because it's, it's new. It's novel. But it's not like necessarily roughing it in a teepee out in the middle of the desert or something like, you know, there's, although that can happen too. Mm-hmm. But it's an opportunity to like confront yourself as the non-creative you've identified yourself as mm-hmm. like, Oh, or I'm not very good or whatever. And so if you've had an idea and maybe you've been in corporate work your whole life or just done something to survive, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like, Oh, it's paid well. And it's afforded me my boat and my house and my all, mm-hmm. but in your soul, there's something stirring for more that, that's like, ah, you know, I remember in high school, I played guitar mm-hmm. and I was writing songs. I really wish I could have done something with that. Or I've got this book in me or I've always wanted to learn how to dance. Like whatever paint, like any of those kinds of things. It's kind of like a, I call it the creative accelerator program. Like it's yeah. really like getting people who are not identified as creative people to identify with that possibility mm. and fail forward. Like admit to yourself that you're going to suck and say to yourself, and I love it because I'm affording myself that opportunity in the same way a kid who falls off his fucking bike doesn't immediately go, I quit, <laughs> Right. get back on the bike and ride some more. Eventually you'll get good at it. Now, you don't have to get good at to the point where you're selling out concert arenas mm-hmm. and, you know, like it's not about the product, it's about the process right. and feeling the cathartic and the healing process that comes from being able to have that part of you um, honored yes. and recognized and, and um, allowed a voice, you know. Mm-hmm. So that conscious creatives camp or creators camp is what it's called getting back into my own music because I've been in the video and the film world for so long and I kind of neglected the music thing for a long time. So really utilizing that as sort of almost like a cross marketing thing. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to be doing an event in next, next month in Phoenix. And so night one is basically a concert, which I'll then say, Hey, if you want to get in touch with your own creative process and and kind of explore that tomorrow, we're going to do like a little, you know, half day, course around that and really get into that zone and then from there like okay if you want to take that to the next level come with us to bali or sardinia or mexico or whatever and we'll Mm -hmm. like we'll be in the tribe and really go in it and go deep and confront all of the shit comes up when you're like oh this I suck at painting. It's like, well, yeah, of course you suck at painting. When's the last time you did it? When you were 12? Right. Yeah. So and everyone's going to suck at everything. And maybe someone will have an innate gift that right. they haven't tapped into. And, and it's going to provoke you because they tapped <laughs> into it kind of easy. Right. But it's like, but they're going to have their own work. Trust me. And even if they, they don't, like you may think it's good, but they'll probably trash it because that's what we do. Yeah. You know, so creating a safe container for people to explore that stuff. And then just utilizing all of the sort of therapeutic things that I've studied to kind of help facilitate a soft landing. Yeah. You know, while while also provoking and pushing and, you know, getting people to ride that edge. Yes. 
So that's kind of the, the main things, like various iterations, creating an internet version of that. Yeah. The book is called You're Not Creative. So that's, that's the sort of long form book, but the immediate like one is, yeah, it's just, thank you. It's just about like, what are some simple ways I can start this process right you now? Like what, mm-hmm. what are the 12 top, you know, ways to kind of push my creative envelope and to just in normal ways, not even yeah. in, in ways that are like, oh, well, go get a whole art kit and set, you know, set aside a space in your whole house for, right. you know, it's like, that's big steps. Like what are baby yeah. steps, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean yoga is an art, right? Uh, cooking is an art. So all of it. People are pretty narrow on what art is. People exactly. are very narrow on what creativity is. Totally as well. So being able to broaden that horizon and and access that, I think, is amazing, man. I mean, you've had those moments, I'm sure, and I know I have, where something inspires you or something clicks, and it's like a bolt of lightning came from another side of the universe and, and struck you. Yeah, and you really feel like there's a before and after moment of like, there's every way I felt before and there's what could this mean going forward? And I've felt that a few times, but I've never been in a room where someone got that right then and there. I mean, that's gotta be very exciting. And so who wouldn't accept that invitation at the possibility of that? Yeah, I hope so. I I mean, to me, it's like, I I learned this when I was in the car sales business for a brief window. (laughs) And there was a woman that I worked with who was just this fiery Latina, older woman. She's a mom, you know, but I think kids are mostly grown up. And, you know, she's working in a man's world, so she's got to have some fucking, mm, Mm -hmm. like, she's not taking taking any guff from anyone. And she was super motivated. So in that world, when you, after you kind of take your lumps and and pay your dues, you kind of just do your own thing. And nobody can really fuck with you. If you move units, nobody's going to say anything. Right. doesn't matter how that happens. Like, to to a fault sometimes. Mm -hmm. But she was great. And um, part of her marketing was basically she had her own billboard magnet uh on her car Mm. right so she was a a driving billboard for who she was as the salesperson the go-to not the not the company but her right right? so she could take that with her wherever she wanted and they knew it right Mm -hmm. so i i i just sort of took that as like what are you willing to put a cheesy advertising magnet sticker on your car for Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah. tacky. It's yeah. it doesn't look good. It's, right. It doesn't make your car look any sexier. Right. And what are you willing to put that aside for? That means enough to you, and it and it, and it feels in service enough right. to deal with that. To put that part aside and say, no, people need to hear this message. Mm-hmm. People need this service, and I'm the one to give it to them. Yes. Like, what's that for you? Yeah. And that's, and I think that's what we're trying to get to because like when you get into that zone where you're doing something that's so in flow for you, like the ripple effect of that is it gives other people permission to do the same thing. And that's where the system that we've created starts to implode. Yes. It's the Buckminster Fuller, like don't fight the system, create something that makes the system obsolete. Right. It's like, and you do. That's how we got here in the first place. Yeah. You start that within yourself. You start that journey. People try and change the system from the outside all the time. And you watch what happens, right? Like, okay, we did all these major strides with the EPA and we've done all these good things. And what's happening Mm -hmm. now with it? It's like, those those things are all in collapse, right? Right. Because those 
because they're not sustainable. Like until yeah. we change from within, and this is the whole spiritual mm-hmm. message of all of this stuff. Like until you become the wellspring of this transformation and this change, where you're tapping into something other than your own ego and your fear, like, oh, the world's collapsing. We have to do something because the planet Earth, blah, blah, blah. Or maybe you don't believe that at all. But the, you see on the other side, it's like, well, we, can't, we don't know if the science is right. We don't know. So and are we going to scrap the economy? And so their fear is the fucking economy. It's like right. you guys are both in fear. Yeah. Your fear that the world's going to collapse. Your fear that the economy, which is the world, is going to collapse. Neither one gets a pass. Mm-hmm. Like until you change within and realize like, okay, the world, well, is going to implode at some point. I right. mean, it may be a comet. It may be the sun farts. Who yeah. knows? Like it, there's a million things that could cause our total annihilation. Yes. And we could also contribute that on our own. And we, we have plenty of skills to do that job twice over with nuclear weapons, <laughs> you yep. know? Mm-hmm. So that's an inevitability on some level. Surrender. It's kind of like surrendering for me. It's like, if, if at the end of this annihilation is what awaits me and, and there is just no more me, like that's it, the show is over, I'm okay with that. It's not as fun. It doesn't feel like it's like fairy tale-ish and like, you know, but I'm okay with it. Like I don't have a fear around that. And subsequently, mm-hmm. if, if there is something beyond and I have to have that conversation and there's, there is a me beyond the three pounds of fat between my ears mm-hmm. that has to contend with other beings or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm okay with that too. Like, yeah. Because so part of the, the freedom is being okay with whatever is, is, and, yes. the, and that's the freedom in the now. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to resist this situation because it's uncomfortable. Well, that's how you have really bad trips. <laughs> yes. Like whether you're on something or not, yeah. you know, you go to a foreign country and you're like, God, it's so like India, you know, he's so filthy here and all the smells and you're in resistance to that as an American. Well, you're going to have a shitty time instead right. of being like, wow, the colors are extraordinary. Yes. Wow. These aromas are things I have never smelled before in my yeah. life. That's very novel. You know, it's like, oh, this is trash is kind of a real problem. I wonder, I wonder what the systemic reason is for that. Yes. So you become more curious and interested as opposed to just like, to get me out of here. Right. Right. And to me, that's the more liberated way to go. It feels because I've been on both sides of that. Mm-hmm. So in as much as I can help facilitate that ease, you know, and also like, can you be engaged like in the world and not of it, right? Can you be engaged and feel like there's a karma, karma yoga, right? They call karma yoga. You do it for the glory of God, right? You're doing this thing, not because your own agenda is involved in that, but you do it as a service and you may not see the fruits of that service. You know, it's the person who plants the trees that will never eat the fruit. that we revere, you know? So I think that's part of it is just like, okay, I'm going to do this in service without any expectation. Um, and it's hard. I say any, it's impossible not to have any, but mitigate your expectation of like payback. But the way you do that is that the work you're doing is so satisfying that that is the payment, right? That's the challenge with artists is like, oh, I'm doing this great work. Uh, and then they get exploited by people right. who want, you know, who want to make the money off their great work, but not right. pay them for their great work. And then that resistance starts to happen. So it's like having a sense of boundaries and have a sense of yourself and your worth, but also doing that as like 
it's like that can be a gift, you know? It's like, yeah. hey, I'm going to set a boundary here because clearly you don't know what that is. So it's not only just a gift for me, but it's a gift for you to have, to be hemmed in a little bit, you know? It's like with a, with a kid, when you're raising a child, right. it's not just fucking free for all, like do what you want, good luck, you mm-hmm. know? It's like you create some boundaries. You try and mitigate how much and how strong those are right. because you don't want to arbitrarily put, but when it's safety-oriented... Right. You know, and even that's a line. Like he was on the boat yesterday, we were sailing and like, you know, there are times where it's like he wants to walk on the bow and along this edge and we're cruising along and you know, I'm like, I could really helicopter right now, you know, but yeah. it's like I assess the situation and just allow, knowing like the parameters, mm-hmm. you know, allow him to, to push himself a little bit and to feel that freedom of exploration because the last thing i want to do is be like oh don't do that you know it's not safe it's like well it's not safe if you fuck about right but it's perfectly fine if you're mindful and aware of your body and holding on like you're supposed to and right it's just that you know but most i don't can't say most parents a lot of parents are going to immediately gravitate towards like blanket unsafe let's just quash it and it's like, no, man, that's not how you breed strong kids, <laughs> you right. know? I agree. Yeah, so it's a, then that's a great lesson every day. Like, that's a great lesson for me to, like, see where my automatic propensity is to go. Mm-hmm. Just shut it down because you don't know. It's uncertain, whatever. And, and to just, like, step back a little bit. And if right. you take some lumps, you're like, bro, that's, that's how we do what we do. We, we right. got to take some lumps sometimes. Yes. And next time you'll jump further. You'll use more muscle, <laughs> right? You know, but but play with it, be with it, and don't don't be like, oh, you know, over dramatize it or any of those kinds of things. I think because that that instills in them that the life life is unsafe and everything has to be, you know, you have to be tentative about everything, mm-hmm. which is not good. Right. People who who seem to do well in this world are more decisive. You know, like yeah. I have been that guy who's vacillated far too long. On a lot of really? overthinking everything, you hmm. know, and I think that has hindered me in terms of my worldly success. Mm-hmm. It's had value in some areas, but it, in terms of like the linear, you know, economics and sure. you know just the world, right. I think it's been a a, a bit of a um, liability. I think luck plays an underestimated factor totally. in that as well. People totally. really don't talk about. People don't really talk about how lucky they are. Um, I attribute mostly every, like, I feel like I'm the most mediocre artist. Right. <laughs> but, like, I've had luck on my side, and my decision making prowess of just, like, I don't know, left, you know, and right. you just go left, you yeah. know, and I don't think about right. You can armchair quarterback, oh, I should have went right all day long, you know, it's just, it doesn't really serve you, but just being able to make speedy decisions. You know, it is a, a tortoise and hare, you know, situation. And I think some days I am the tortoise um, in, in so far as, you know, I just keep going forward, forward, forward. Yeah. I don't really question much, but I do need to implement a lot more thoughtfulness in some mm-hmm. of those decisions. Like I, it's backfired on me in that way of mm-hmm. like, I could have really pondered on that, but now I'm married to that decision. Right. And and it's like, mm, but I'm so stubborn. I'm like, okay, well, this this is, this is the decision. Yeah. yeah, but um, I could I could you I could definitely use. Um, I think I mentioned this when we met. Was I get a project to eighty percent, and I'm like, get it out of here. Yeah, I don't want to be a perfectionist because nobody 
really cares and I'm not here to the jack 1%. off other artists, yeah. you know, so they like my shit. Right. I don't care. Um, it's like skateboarding. I've never been a skateboarder, but it's like, isn't it called like sketchy when something's like not perfectly, you didn't do enough twirls or whatever. It's like, Oh, he barely landed that to me. Mm. I, I barely land it, but mm-hmm. here I am now on the other side. But mm-hmm. John Prophet, um, thank you for coming to my crib yeah, man. and, and hanging out with me, me and doing this podcast. This was a delight for me, man. This was really Thanks, awesome. Man. And if there's anything I could ever do for you um, to perpetuate your cause, I mean, you just let me know. I'm just a hip scop and a hip hop scop jump, <laughs> whatever, away. You know, scop. I'm just here. And so I want to be of service and I, I really support your cause. Thanks, I support man. your uh, vantage point where you come from and it, it's so incredibly emotional and complex and sensitive and um you know just whatever i can do to to make you louder yeah thanks i nice. mean that's that's what i'm here to do man um is there any place and this is a selfish question where i can find your music like how do i tap into a discography or, or anything that's out there that has your name on it yeah so band cap band camp so I think the way they do this is they put your name first. So it's J O N P R O P H E T dot com or dot bandcamp dot com. So John Prophet, no H in John, it's the big thing. Uh, and Prophet spelled like Prophet Muhammad as opposed to coin. Mm-hmm. Um, so John Prophet, and then uh, there's some YouTube stuff, but it's old. Like I got to redo all of that stuff. Um, and what else is there? Um, so JohnProphet.com, That'll be that may be live now. And that talks about some of the other work, you know, the more facilitation-oriented work and public speaking. But there'll be a subscription base because I'll have some of the paintings that I've done available for like high-res printing. If you want to do, do it all, canvassing and you know, phot- photographs from my travels. I'll probably reorient the films that I've done and kind of make them in that, put that in that container. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, eventually get back into the podcasting thing, too, because I'm, I'm like you, and I'm really just interested in people and stories and narratives. Yeah. I mean, that's what I loved about when I did the best and most interesting film book, which is what you found, mm-hmm. was that the story of artists, you know, and yeah. helping to convey their narratives and the things that made them tick and really finding the crossroads and in, in maybe different approaches, but where do those lines cross in all of these people? Like what's mm-hmm. just understanding the world and your relationship. Yeah. I mean, that's really what all of this stuff is about. So man, yeah, I appreciate anyone who's interested is interesting to me. And I think you probably feel the same way. I definitely know? do. Yeah. You've got, you've, there's such a, a thoughtful quality. And, and like I said, when we met the first time I've had people reach out to me, in ways that just were immediately like, nah, I'm not, it's not, we're not, there's no value exchange here. Mm-hmm. Like it's, or at least what you think you're offering, I just don't have any interest in. Right. Right. Totally. And like, and you asked me like how into you are the, or how are you much are you into the film thing these days and blah, blah, blah. And like, it's so specific. Like yeah. if it's an interesting story or if it's but the, the medium itself is a vehicle. Yes. I'm not, I don't care about gear. I don't care, you know, like mm-hmm. g- gadgets and the slickest shot. And I mean, I appreciate all that stuff, but really I, I care about essence, the essential quality of what's being communicated here. <laughs> yeah. You're a like, real artist. I felt like that from you, you know, that was, that was the dream. No, I'm just trying to make money. I just totally. want to be rich. I can tell. I can tell by. I just want to be rich. All of it. <laughs> 
No. I want to be rich, bitch. People think that I make my money off of this podcast, and I'm like, no, uh, I've never made a cent off the podcast, but also, like, I don't, you know, my relationship with the audience, like, I don't want to monetize off of them. Like, that's, yeah. that's like, my sacredness. That's my, mm. that's my, we get to kind of, like, it's like a, it's like a fight club. Mm. I don't need to monetize the fight club. I just want to get punched in the head sometimes, and I want to <laughs> elbow you in the face sometimes and yeah. just walk away and don't ask any questions but like that's my relationship with the, with my quote-unquote personal brand like yeah. i don't want to sell squarespace ads right. i'm not in that business i'm not right. here to sell tickets or anything like yeah. this is this is play this is like rolling jujitsu for me this is my yoga you nice. know so nice. totally but um you are such a thoughtful human. Thank you so much for coming out. And I'd love to do this again or, yeah, thanks, or help man. you in some capacity do this for you when you're, when you're ready to get your Tim Ferriss on. Yeah. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Nice. My pleasure. You're Thank dope. you, sir. Yeah. You're the best.